If you've got your Bible open, let's turn to John chapter 2 together this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 2. We're beginning at the beginning of the chapter. Imagine that. Going all the way through verse 11. We're told there, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have shown yourself to us in Jesus Christ. That as we come together, that we can believe in you because you're real. That you have come and you have shown us who you are and what you're about. And Lord, this story, many of us know it. We've heard it so many times. We, we point to it. We reference it. Lord, would there be something here that we see you, we see your heart, we see your glory, and it speaks to us, and more importantly, it changes us. Uh, Lord, would this time be used that we may come into contact, know you better, and love you better. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I love the fact that the first example that we see in the Gospel of John of Jesus' ministry after calling his disciples to him and starting to have a ministry. The first example we see of it uh, here in John is a wedding. It's a celebration. It's not Jesus in a synagogue. It's not Jesus uh, even preaching publicly on the street. It's not Jesus debating or arguing with someone, but it is Jesus and his disciples celebrating. And they're doing the very thing that I think many of us consider to be one of the most celebratory things, which is they're attending a wedding. Uh, what we see when we look at this is there's something about Jesus that is very important that we often overlook, uh, and um, we see it by the way that he actually handles this family, this wedding family, running out of wine. There is, uh, it, it, it'd be hard to find a more significant event in Jewish culture than a wedding. Uh, a wedding was a, was a huge deal for a Jewish family. A couple was betrothed, uh, they were like engaged, but it was a more intense version of engagement really for, uh, for a while, and, a, and to be betrothed was such a serious thing, it was such a serious commitment in and of itself that if you broke off that relationship before the wedding, you still had to undergo some form of divorce proceedings, because to be betrothed was to already begin to be committed to one another, and a couple would be betrothed to one another, and then the wedding ceremony itself would consist of the, the groom and his friends 
at night usually, leaving his home, and they would have lamps with them, and they would walk through the city to the bride's home, and, they would, uh, and he would greet her there. And, and at some point after that, there would be a religious ceremony. People would give speeches. People would talk. It would be just a wonderful time, like an intimate time, um, and a time devoted to God as they would be married together. And then they would make their way back to the groom's home, and, uh, and they would then have a wedding feast hosted by the family. Uh, wedding feasts were a huge deal. It was an open door. Anybody could come, and they often lasted up to a week. So this was a big, big deal. Now, just like a wedding nowadays, to run out of something that you need for the ceremony or for the celebration is a really big deal. It's something that you didn't want to have to do. Now, this family that was having this wedding that Jesus and his disciples came to, along with Jesus' mother and several others, they were probably poor or or poorer. Um, And the reason that we would say that is because if you're planning a wedding, you don't run out of things, right? Uh, anybody who knows about planning a party or a gathering of some kind, you go over, uh, over the top. You say, let's just get plenty, right? Let's get more than we need. If we're going to have like a party for a week and it's going to be no problem, we're going to make sure that we've got more than what we need. And if you have the money and the resources to do that, that's exactly what you need. You just fill up a room full of stuff, get plenty of wine, plenty of everything. Say, just in case, we don't want to run out because that would be terrible. If you're poor, that's not what you do. If you don't have much money, that's not what you do. If you don't have much money, then you say, well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get what we can afford. We'll get exactly what we think we'll need because that's what we can afford. That's probably what this family had done. They were putting together a wedding, uh, probably on a limited budget, and Jesus and his disciples are there with them, and then they run out of wine. And the master of the servants comes and, uh, and, and brings this to everyone's attention, and Jesus' mother comes to him and says, I want you to do something about it. And that's the account that we've just read. Now, what Jesus does here is he begins to, they describe it by saying, manifest his glory. And that's a, a, pretty much what that means, is it means to put skin and bones on something, to make something physical, right? You take his glory, his greatness, and you say, I want to make it tangible for people to experience. I want people to actually begin to see through my actions and the things that I do, the way that I live, the things that I say, my glory, and I'm going to do that by miracles, by signs, by showing you that I have the authority from God. And he does this in a variety of ways. But because Jesus is going to show his glory in such huge ways in the future, it's easy to mistake in the situations, to pass by the situations when he shows his glory in very small things. And this is one of those things. And it's the beauty of this account of what we see happen with Jesus and the family that's hosting this wedding and what it tells us about him. What he does here is something to show people his greatness, but the way he does it, the way he shows his greatness through this, by fixing this little problem of running out of wine, shows us a lot more about Jesus. There are the things that we do, there are the ways that we do them, and it's oftentimes the ways that we do things that tell people who we are. You see this with gift giving. It's not just the giving of a gift. It's the way you give a gift. It's the kind of gift you give. It's the effort and the thought that you put into a gift that says a lot about you. Uh, we, we, may, we all know this, right? We know people who are really good at giving gifts. They really love giving gifts. And they, that re, that's reflected in the way they give them. And then there are people who are bad at giving gifts, who don't care 
as much about giving gifts maybe, and that's reflected very much in not just the kinds of things that they give, but the way that they give them. We experienced this in our family at Christmas this last year. Uh, we, I thought, had talked a lot about not getting gifts um, for each other, Ellie and I, um, and I, try, I, I was very clear that I thought that that was a good idea. Um, I, was, I was going through a lot at the time. I was very self-absorbed at the time, and so I thought, you know, I, I'm just being honest here, so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm just, let's just kind of, you know, think about the kids and stuff, and so... You know, just kept asking Ellie, uh, you know, just, just again, like, we're not, nothing big, right? We're not doing, no, 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 it's fine, we're not doing anything big, you know? Um, and so, um, uh, uh, Christmas morning came around, we gave our kids their presents, they had a great time opening them, and then we sat down with some coffee, and we sat down to open our little presents that we had gotten each other. And Ellie, uh, she got me a jacket uh, that she had kind of thought would be just the perfect jacket that I want to wear all the time, I guess I, I, guess I look cold. And um, I, I got this book a while ago on the Oregon Trail, and uh, the, uh, it was like this old book, and the illustrations for the book were paintings by this painter, Thomas Benton. And I really liked them. I thought they were really cool paintings. And so she went and she, online and she found me a print of one of his uh, drawings or one of his paintings, and it was of a, of a group of people going to church in this little church in the countryside. And she put it in a frame, and she put this thing on the back that talked all about it, and she gave me that. And I have it in my office, and I love it so much. And then she got me just the best thing. She got me uh, a, a strainer that goes on a pot, like for pasta. Brilliant. Like you clip it onto the pot, and then you just dump the water out of the pot. And it's so much better than the strainer I had been using. And I was so excited about it. And a lot of thought she had put into this stuff. Now, she gave me the disclaimer at the beginning that she always gives, which is, you're really hard by. I didn't really know. I don't think I got you very good stuff this year. Ellie always says that. And, um, and then it was amazing, and, and I loved it. Um, and I got Ellie a really funny T-shirt. And <laughs> in my defense, it was a really funny T-shirt. I think it's definitely going to be like an if you see something, say something um, at some point. But, uh, but that is all that I got Ellie. And uh, like I said, I'll own this. I was very self-absorbed at the time. I'm going to make up for it next Christmas, but um, there is a lot of truth to the fact that it isn't just uh, the things that we do as people that really show you who we are. It's really the way that we do those things, and it's not just that Jesus performs miracles and signs and things that are, that are supernatural and that aren't possible uh, in the realm of the, the physical world that we seem to live in. It's the things that he chooses to do. It's the way that he does them. And it's the stakes often involved that tells us really about the heart of God and about Jesus. The first thing that we see when we look at this passage, when Jesus turns this water into wine, is that Jesus cares a lot about something that you, you would think isn't really in the grand scheme of things all that important. We're not talking about physical healing from sickness. We're not talking about resurrection from the dead. We're not even talking about forgiveness of sins. We're talking about running out of wine. And Jesus fixes this problem. He solves it miraculously. He, he helps a family that is probably incredibly upset and concerned and worried because of what's going on. We read about how Jesus does this. And what it tells us about Jesus, first and foremost, is this, that 
Jesus does care very deeply about a lot of the ordinary things that we deal with that go on in our lives. And this is an important thing to see in Jesus and in his ministry. To run out of wine at a wedding is, is pretty humiliating at the time. And you could really associate this, you could, you could liken this to running out of food at a modern wedding. Because to run out of wine um, in a Jewish wedding, where they had wine with every meal, they, watered it, they added a lot of water to it, and they would drink a lot throughout the whole week, and, um, and they would, it, was a, it was a normal part of every meal. And so to run out of wine would be almost the equivalent of, of us at a wedding today running out of food. Imagine if you invited people to a wedding. We all know how big of a deal those are. And then about three tables left to go during the meal service, they just came out and were like, we're sorry, but we don't have any more food, so you'll have to just be happy with the rolls, you know? And, uh, and for the last three tables, they just, whoever those three tables were, sorry, no more food. And, and then maybe they came up to, like, the bride or groom or the mother or the bride or the groom or somebody, and they said, hi, we're sorry to let you know we have run out of food, and so we will not be able to serve the last three tables I mean, what would you do, right? That would be terrible, right? And you think, oh, well, no, it's just a wedding. No, no, it would, be, it, would be, it would be terrible, right? If you're like, come on, there's kind of an agreement here, right? I'm going to come to the wedding, I'll buy you a gift, and you're going to spend a bunch of money on me and feed me and make sure that I have a good time, and then we'll all feel happy about how this day transpired. And so if you go and they run out of food, that's a really big deal. If you've ever been involved in planning a wedding, you know exactly the stakes that we're talking about here. You know how much things need to be right. We, we care about the details of these things because this is a big day in the life of two people and in the lives of two families. Now, you could argue that running out of wine as bad as it is probably could be made up for by the fact that this was the wedding that Jesus Christ was at, and that would be probably a big thing to boast, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, we did run out of wine, but Jesus you know, the Messiah was at our wedding, so, you know, maybe that can count, but that doesn't seem to be a big deal to people yet because he hasn't started doing crazy things, I guess. But I think that we know what it is to be in a situation that this family is in where something happens and it's just devastating. And it might not be something that other people would look at objectively and say, in the grand scheme of things in the universe, that is a devastating thing to have happen. But to us, it's a devastating thing to have happen. To us, it's a hard thing to have happen, and it's an upsetting thing. One time, my grandmother, it was her 70th birthday party, and her six daughters decided to throw her a surprise 70th birthday party. And they spent six months planning this party. And it was huge. Uh, They got a Clark Gable impersonator which was amazing, okay? They had swing dancers come, uh, professional swing dancers come and do some dancing and stuff. They had people come and sing songs that uh, my grandfather had passed away, but that were like my grandparents' favorite songs. And um, my mom's job, and it was, a, it, was a, it, like, it was a really big job. They gave her the task of sifting through and compiling and collecting amongst a family of eight people all of the photographs that she could find uh, and this was in an age when nothing was digital or anything, and then getting these things to a guy who ran a company that takes these things and makes something that was really new that hadn't really come on the scene quite yet called a slideshow, and what he would do is he'd put them on this VHS tape, and he would add music and make it look all nice, you know, Ken Burns effect and everything, and it was really cool. And so my mom spent six months of her life, like, Every night, she would get home from work, and she would just work on this slideshow. She'd try to get more pictures from people. She'd found things that no one had seen in a really long time, and she submitted them all to this guy. 
and he puts them together. And so when my mom finally comes into town for the, uh, for the, the party, because she didn't live in town, uh, she came over to my sister's apartment, and we all got together, and we popped the VHS tape in the VHS player, and we watched the slideshow. It was called Thanks for the Memories, and uh, I'll still remember that, and it was amazing. I mean, it was like great. It was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, look at that picture. I never even knew that, and this is amazing. Grandma's going to absolutely love it. She's going to be so surprised. She's going to be so happy. Mom, you did a really good job. My mom was really nervous about it, and uh, you know, you got like six sisters. They all have a job. You definitely want to make sure that you do a good job because everyone's kind of counting on you. So we have the party, and it was great, and everybody was having a great time, and we said, Grandma, it just gets better, and she's like, Clark Gable sitting next to me. How does this get better? And they were like, it gets better, and so they sat her down in front of the TV, and we all gathered around, and we popped this VHS in the VHS player, and we pushed play, and it was a blue screen. And we were like, that's really weird. And so we rewound it. No, it was rewound. And we played it. And then we fast-forwarded some. And then we played it. And then it was kind of staticky. And it was blue. It turned out it had been erased. That somehow this one copy that we had had been erased. And so we, my mom started crying. And she you know, left the room. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh. And oh, never mind, never mind. We'll figure it out. Oh, everybody just keep going. We're going to do some other stuff. We're going to open presents for grandma pretty soon. So I went upstairs with my friend who was there with me. And my uncle was at their house. And we went to my uncle's bedroom. And we put it in their VCR. We tried to figure it out. And we, uh, I mean, it was erased, and we were like, great, what do we do? This is going to absolutely devastate my mom. And so my uncle left. He went downstairs to tell my mom that it was, in fact, erased, and we weren't going to, like, have time to watch it. And my friend and I were up there, and, and I was like, I really feel like I should pray for this thing, this tape, uh, because, you know, I mean, God could, right, do this. And so... I got on my knees, and I prayed over a VHS tape, and I, I was like, God, I don't know if you're, you're, if you're laughing right now. Um, I know you can do this. Uh, it's not a question of that, but my mom is devastated right now, and this isn't really about a tape. This isn't really about a slideshow. This is about a person the youngest of six sisters who desperately did not want to let everybody down, and she is completely devastated right now. Um, and uh, I think she was out in the backyard smoking in a porch swing, and she doesn't smoke. And I was like, um, <laughs> I, was, I was like, God, if you would just do something here, you know? And I, and I prayed about it, and um, my friend was with me, and, um, and then I said, okay, and then we put it back in, and it worked. And it the thing I love about this story, well, there's a lot of things I love about it, but one is that most of the people I tell it to are probably like, yeah, you probably just don't know how to work a VHS player. Uh, not the most amazing, miraculous healing story that I've ever heard, but that's fine. Okay, whatever. Uh, I can tell you this, though. My mom knows what happened, and I and my friend know what happened, and even my uncle, who was like really weirded out and doesn't really believe in God, was like, wait, what, where did you get to? I was like, I prayed about it, you know? I've actually felt still kind of weird telling people, like, I prayed about it. Okay, that's fine. Um, and I'll never forget getting to go out and sit there and tell my mom what had happened and tell her that it was fixed. And we got to bring everybody back in like nothing had ever happened. And to get to tell my mom, who grew up in a Catholic home, went to a Catholic school, and had a view of a God that wasn't quite so personal, that he cared enough about her and what had gone on to actually intervene in this situation and do something. 
Um, I've seen God answer a lot of prayers, and I've seen him not answer a lot of prayers that I've lifted up. But um, there are moments in our lives when we recognize that there are things that happen, and they mean a lot to us. And they're really hard for us. And it's because of us. It's because of, of what it feels like the loss, the pain, the difficulty, the struggle that we're going through, not even because objectively everybody agrees that on a grand universal scale, it seems to mean all that much. Jesus' miracle with wine shows just how human he is, that he understands the urgency of our situations, that he understands the feelings that are involved in our situations and the importance of the things that are important to us. And you learn, if you've ever been in a relationship with someone, that feelings are valid, not just situations, which means it's not just about what happens, it's about how it makes us feel. You can logically debate with somebody about whether something is or isn't a certain way, but if it made them feel something, that's real to them. And God understands that about us. And he understands that we wrestle through things and struggle with things at some point in our life that we might not even necessarily look back on and say, I understand why I wrestled with and struggled with that thing. One of the funniest things about getting older is that you so often look back in life and think, why did I care so much about that thing? Why did I get so upset about that thing? I mean, is there any better example of that than weddings? Then we plan every single detail and want it to be perfect, and we often look back and go, that didn't matter that much to me, or I don't even remember all of the things that I stressed out over. What I do remember is these few things, or I do remember is this one priority that I had. We have a tendency to do that, just like an adult has a tendency to look at a child and say, why do you care so much about this thing? It's not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. Well, it's a big deal to us then, and that means something. Jesus' ministry is rooted here in our world. The, the, the backdrop of his ministry is our world. The canvas and the context of the things he's going to do is the world that we live in. The miracles that he's going to perform are with people like us. The, the, the personalities that he's going to encounter and the needs and the brokenness, as well as the excitement and the triumph and the celebration are all the things that we actually deal with. These people are us. And Jesus understands what it is to be us. Our problems are the things he's going to encounter. He's not just going to brush right past them and say, I'm bigger than this stuff. I'm bigger than the things that you're dealing with. I'm bigger than the things that seem to matter to you so much. I love this account of a miracle because it shows us that Jesus cares about the ordinary. And we often think that Jesus, that God cares about the universally big things, but we struggle to think that he cares about the things that are so personal to us. And oftentimes that's because other people don't care about those things. Now, that doesn't mean that we are supposed to be drama queens about everything. And we're supposed to get 
so incredibly upset about everything that happens, be so self-absorbed because somehow the more upset we get and the more focused we get on ourselves and the more we tell everyone and everything God all the time about everything going on with us, then somehow we'll get his attention and he'll pay attention to us and he'll help us and fix what's going on. We're not called to be self-absorbed people who constantly worry about our own lives. But the truth is that as we look even through Scripture, we see very personal things going on with people, and we see God meeting people in those places. Now, what Jesus does is he goes on to make wine. Uh, He fills up these pitchers. He has them filled up with water. They're normally used for washing your hands, and there's a lot of hand washing. And they they would pour water down their hands like this, and then they would let it drip, and they'd pour water down their hands that way and let it drip. And then their hands were cleansed, and they could eat, and they could celebrate with everybody that way. And he takes these water jars, these big stone ones, and he has them fill them all the way up to the top so that nothing else can be added, which is important because it means no wine can be added. And then he says to draw out of the pot, and, and he says to bring it to the master of the servants. Now, this is a person who was usually a friend or someone in the family who was just given the job of being in charge of all the servants and all the people that were helping with the wedding ceremony or the wedding celebration. They were the one to make sure that things were going smoothly. And he said, bring this wine to that person. And when he brings it to him, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Um, he kind of brings him over, you know. And he says this to him, and this is one of the most realistic things that I think I've ever read in one of the Gospels in terms of something a person would say at a wedding late in the game to somebody else, okay, is everyone serves good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. He says to him something that is very true, right, which is like, hey, listen, if we're going to have a week of eating and drinking, uh, then uh, any smart person would have the good stuff first when people actually are paying attention. And then once they've been there for a while, or really also all the honorable guests are going to come first. And then all of the people that trickle in over the week of celebration, he says, uh, you know, then that's when you kind of throw out the cheap stuff. People aren't going to care quite so much, believe me. Now this word, uh, drink freely, when he says drunk freely, that word drunk You translate that word literally, it actually means to consume a lot of alcohol. And it's not saying to binge drink alcohol one person. It's just saying that once it's all the alcohol specifically has been gone because they would have it with their meals and everything else. This isn't uh, an account meant to excuse going to weddings and saying we can all just drink all we want and Jesus is the part, the great party master, you know, and, and he, that's what he wants us to do. I'm sure, I'm sure someone has interpreted it this way. Uh, but, uh, but I also can't tell you this is grape juice. This stuff is wine, and that's what they add with their meals. And he comes to the bridegroom, and he says to him, this wine's better than the other wine that you had. Wow. Why? Why, why of all the things to point out and to say that? Why is that pointed out and is that said? Why do we hear that from this person? Why does John, when he's writing this gospel, want to emphasize that when this happens, that this was said about it, that the wine was better than what was before? And it's this, and it really simply is this, is that Jesus always is going to offer something better. Because whenever Jesus does something, when Jesus is involved, and when Jesus works and moves, it will be better. That doesn't mean that he will take everything you have in your life and give you a better version of that thing. But that means that when Jesus is involved, you know that Jesus means better. 
Jesus is, he is addressing something that I learned about in economics class when I was a senior in high school, the law of diminishing marginal utility. I was going to make that a sermon point, but uh, I decided against it. Diminishing marginal utility. They explained it this way. The first pizza pizza is always the best piece of pizza. The sixth piece, not quite so good. The more that you enjoy something, the more that you use something, the less enjoyable it becomes. This is a fact of life. Jesus gets this fact of life, and he says, not when I'm involved, not when I'm a part of what's going on. It doesn't get old. I always promise better. The God of the Old Testament that these people worshipped was absolutely huge in scope. The Jewish people worshipped a God who created everything out of nothing by his mere words. And then recreated after destroying with a flood. He created a nation full of people in the midst of a pharaoh who did everything in his power to keep them down. God used every one of those things to only grow them more as a nation of people. He brought plague and pestilence. He brought uh, famine. He brought uh, down his enemies in any number of ways. He split the sea. He redeemed and rescued his people. He was present to them as a pillar of fire. And he miraculously sustained them through the wilderness. He gave them a promised land. He delivered them from their enemies. And it didn't matter how numerous the enemies were. That never mattered. Because the God that the Jewish people worship, who they know, is such a big God, such an amazing God, that he can do all of those things. And these accounts, these stories, this history is what their identity is rooted in as a people. He had made them a great nation. They had a great history because he had done great things. And Jesus is coming, and he's pointing to the fact that even though so much has happened in the past, that even greater things are coming. And this might actually be hard for people to believe who are used to thinking about what's happened. Remembering what's happened and not necessarily thinking about what will happen and what will come. And Jesus comes and he says, I offer something better. Just at the point when you think the party's getting old, just at the point when you start to get used to everything and think this is normal, God is normal, it's usual and typical I have come to give you something better and point you to a future in which what is better that is coming is something that you can barely conceive of with your mind. Jesus is coming to point to the fact that God has yet to do even greater things than he's already done, that God's relationship with his people, no matter how powerful, how cinematic it was, that it was even distant compared to what it would be through Jesus, because the best is yet to come. We tell our own children these stories, these amazing stories of an amazing God who has done amazing, incredible things. We talk about Jesus this way, too, and about the cross, but are we a people who are known for looking ahead 
as much as we are looking behind. As much as we look to the past and say, this tells us who we are as a people because God isn't changing and the history is important and it tells us about a God who is the same today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow. But do we look ahead in hope that through Jesus there's even better things to come, that there's even more to come? Do we believe that the God who acted then is the God who can act now and who will act in the future? Do we believe that or do we just believe in a God who acted then? And now it's just normal life. First Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is no greater thing than this inheritance that is promised to us. And what we're called to do is to live our lives with our gaze fixed upon this eternal inheritance that is to come that is far better than anything that we have ever experienced, which is hard for us to wrap our minds around because it feels like all we've experienced is is this life and here, and so how could it be better than this? How do I even understand the way that that works? But again and again, we're told to fix our eyes on what is to come through Jesus and know that it's better even than what has come, which is a hard thing to believe and a hard thing to put faith in. It's hard to live in anticipation of something like that when we want to live now or for many of us, we want to live in the past. For so many of us, God seems so big in the beginning. He seemed to be able to do so much and change so much. He transformed us. He maybe fixed us. He was real to us at some point, but then he just became life just became normal, just became typical. He's already done the things that he's going to do, or at worst, we not only get used to it, but we almost become inoculated to the idea of God because he's already done what he's going to do and we can't really expect him to do more in the future. God's a part of my life. I don't expect things to necessarily go any different, really, in my life than they would for anybody else because God moved and he worked, and that's not necessarily something he's going to do now. And John recounts this here for a reason. He's showing us something that's going to happen again and again and again and again, and it's this. Jesus is just going to blow people away. That's what it is. There are people who don't know about him, and he's going to blow their minds There are people who are religious, who think they know, who think that they they see God, but they've become so used to the idea of God that Jesus is going to blow their minds when he comes and does something and offers something even greater than what's there. And what we find typically is that the religious people are the people that don't really end up expecting very much when Jesus comes walking into town. They don't really expect a whole lot out of him. They don't really expect a whole lot to happen. And the things that he does, that he does are far better than what's been done. We do this in the church. We think God's done something in the church. Does that not mean that God will continue to do something in the church? We think our church has a great history. Do we not believe that means that we have a great future? We believe that when God has done something, that we want to find our identity in the thing that he has done and think that that's where it will end. And frankly, a lot of the time, it's just because we're so amazed that God has done something. That, that we think it's almost arrogant to expect that he would do more, that he would move again in the future. But that's the God of the Bible. 
that we see in Jesus. He is someone who always offers better. There is always better with him. Do you believe that God is not done showing himself active in your life? Showing himself to be real in your world. Our history matters. It tells us who we are. It tells us who we've been. It tells us who God is and who God has been. But Jesus comes and he offers something even better. And we look ahead to that. It says at the end of this passage that Jesus then goes forth to do signs and wonders so that the disciples would come to believe in him. It says that's the reason why he goes ahead and does this. And that's kind of the end of this, of this, of this passage that we're in. So Jesus is doing these things in part really so that the disciples themselves would come to believe in him. Now we hear that and we go, well, don't they already believe in They're following and there's disciples. Not necessarily. While some have professed, we believe you're the Messiah, we believe you're the one that is to come, uh, the truth is that uh, many of the disciples that are following him don't yet fully really believe in him. Uh, he has asked them to follow him as a rabbi, would ask young uh, Jewish men to follow them. And, and they've given up their jobs. They've walked away because for many people, there's a lot of honor and a lot of privilege and a lot of good that comes from following a rabbi. Uh, you, you become discipled by someone. And therefore, in the Jewish community, when, when your time as a disciple is done, you're respected. It's something to be proud of, to go from being a fisherman to being a disciple of a well-respected rabbi with a successful ministry. Who, who understands the law and is able to teach it to you and show you how to use it in your life, teach it to other people. It's a very respectable way to live. It's a good way to invest your time. But what Jesus knows, and, and if you know the story, you know this as well, is that things aren't going to end that way for the disciples. They're going to start to find out every step of the way that the end result of this may not be more respect in the eyes of their fellow Jews. It may be less uh, it may not end up in the end with them being in a better position than they were when they started. They may feel like they're in a worse position in this world than when they started. And what we know of many of the disciples is what we know of all the disciples and ultimately the apostles is that uh, their ministry for Jesus will lead to great sacrifice personally and even to death. So Jesus knows that while these men might profess things with their mouth, yes, I agree with you, yes, you seem to have authority from God, that they don't really fully believe, which is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around, but it's also totally true of the way that we work. We say things that we don't fully believe. We become a part of a group who believes things that we don't fully believe. We follow even people that we don't fully believe because to say something is one thing. To try to believe it in our mind is one thing, but to actually trust Jesus is another thing. And when Jesus calls us to trust him, he doesn't call us to do it blindly and for no reason. He always gives us a reason why we can trust him, why we can believe. Faith is not something that we're called to do for no reason, with no evidence. Faith is how we're called to live and trust in things that God has given us plenty of reason to trust in, but our flesh makes us want to do something else. That even though God's shown us that it's real and true, for some reason it's just hard to live in it and to trust it and to do it. And this is why it says that Jesus is going to go about giving signs, pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah, 
giving them indications that God has given him authority and that they should pay attention to what he's saying. And for many of us, the process of truly believing and genuinely trusting the things that Jesus says, actually living out the things that we, you know, try to say that we believe, is what we call sanctification. It's this idea of actually aligning ourselves with Jesus as we live our lives, of saying, I'm going to let go of the sin in my life. I'm going to turn over more of my heart to him. And as I do that, I become more like Christ. And that process of sanctification is the process of aligning really what we do with a lot of times, for many of us, what we say. One quote that I read about this, Pastor Sue was sharing it with me this last week, was that sanctification is the shortening of the distance between what we say and what we believe. And for many religious people, this is what sanctification is. We say things easily. We say them quickly. I believe this. I believe this. I think this. I think this. We can learn all the facts of the Bible, but that doesn't mean that we believe those things, that we do those things. And the distance between what we say and what we believe hopefully shrinks as we live to where there's less of a distance. And that process of there being less of a distance between what I say and what I believe is called sanctification. And the hope is that that, 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 that space grows smaller and smaller and smaller. This is what Jesus is even do, helping the disciples in doing. He's, he's giving them reasons why they can believe him, why they can trust him. But we know that we can have all the reasons to believe something and still struggle to believe it because of our flesh, because of the way that we live. If I tell my child to trust me because I want what's best for them, I've shown them this every day of their life, and yet they still struggle to trust me. Then even though I've given every reason why I can be trusted, they still struggle to trust me because that's what it is to live in the flesh. Even though a, a, a pilot uh, who's, who's flying and looking at their instruments knows that they should be able to trust what their instruments tell them and not what they see out the window. When you talk to pilots who have to fly based on their instruments and not what they see out the window, they can tell you how hard it is, especially in the beginning. Because even though I know these things are true, I really struggle to actually believe it. And I'm about to put my life on the line for those things. I was talking with someone recently who had had cancer and was in remission and was sharing that they were having a hard time with fear. They were having a hard time with even just living in the truth of the fact that they had been in remission because they were continuing to live in fear that it would come back. And she was saying, I, 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 I am being robbed of the ability to be, to be better because even though I know that I am, I struggle to really believe it, and so I spend my time worrying, and I spend my time ruminating, and I spend my time being afraid. That we can know things with our minds, but not truly know them with our heart. And that is what Jesus calls his disciples to do, but he doesn't call us to do it and give us no help. He says, I will give you reasons to believe. I will show you why and you can believe in me and why you can trust me. And one of the biggest ways that we can do this is by simply obeying the command that he gives us the most, which is not to fear. He says, do not fear. Know that you can trust me. 
Know that I offer something that is ultimately good. There's a reason he says it so many times to not fear. Because it's one of the hardest things for us not to do. But a child who trusts their parent can live without fear. But the only way that we can really do that is if we believe the things that Jesus tells us. How do we know that we can trust him? How do we know that we're safe with him? Because he knows what we're going through. He knows the big things that everybody sees, and he knows the little things that only some of us would see. But I cannot think of a better example of something that would just ruin our year than a wedding that we had planned and wanted to be perfect and then started to go south. Then a tape that gets erased. Then a, then a, then a, a single comment that's misunderstood by a workplace full of people and all of the wreckage that comes from something that small. We know what it is to feel the pain of those things. And the wonderful thing is that we have a God who knows that we feel those things and who meets us there and who says, that thing that is real for you, because I lived on this earth in the flesh, because Jesus came and walked and lived with us, he knows what it is that we go through, and he meets us where we are, and he says, I offer you something better if you can trust me, something that you look ahead to, that regardless of what happens in this thing, whether I, whether I heal it or not, whether I turn the water into wine or not, whether I solve the problem right in front of you or not, I offer you something better. And that is the thing that you look ahead to. It is an eternal inheritance that's assured for you. I'm protecting it for you. You won't lose it. It will not be defiled. It won't waste away. It will not get old like the last pizza pizza. But it will be as good. I'm gonna end right here. I'm, I wanna end on this. As good as the first pizza pizza. Let's pray. Amen. Father, you are so good, and um, it is amazing that we come here to worship you, and we try to wrap our minds around how big you are, and yet how personal you are, and we simply cannot seem to do it. I pray that as Pastor Matt comes up and leads us through communion this morning, that our hearts uh, would truly recognize what you've done for us, that you came, and that you lived, and that you sacrificed for us, and that we take this time truly, truly to heart, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Father, there are a few times that we celebrate more than at weddings. And at most weddings, uh, the fun part is the wine. And Lord, I, I can't help but think that when Jesus turned that water into wine, he did so with a sort of a wink, knowing that, um, that what he offers that what you offer us is far more enjoyable than any party that we can experience, than any drink or drug could make us feel, Lord. And the truth is that we have so many ways that we try to find joy, that we try to have fun, that we try to see uh, the good things in this life, God, and to enjoy them while we're here. And yet, Lord, um, even the people, uh, the, 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 the food, the drink, the relationships, the fun, the joy, all of those things, Lord, pale in comparison to what you offer us. And so we sing that you are good and 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 we say it again and again and again in part because it's hard for us to believe it. 
because there's so many other things that we want to believe are the ultimate good. Our prayer this morning is that as we leave here, that you would remind us again and again and again of how good you really are, that this new wine, that this new thing that you offer us, Lord, that it is better than everything because it is you, Lord, that we would be satisfied in you and find joy and celebration in you. If we can do that, we will truly be content and joyful, Lord. That's our prayer this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.